Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? All right. Well, hello, everybody. This is uh, a really exciting night. I'm glad to see y'all joining us. Some folks are joining us on the Zoom link directly. Uh, you can always register and do that. We're also streaming on a bunch of different platforms, and this will be recorded. I'm sure some of y'all are listening to it afterwards, but I'm a little um, I, I'm a little blushing because this month's book club is is my new book, Rethinking Life. And I can't imagine anybody I'd rather talk about it with than Lisa Sharon Harper, who will jump in in just a minute. But as folks kind of join us, um, thanks, first of all, for uh, being a part of Red Letter Christians. And our book clubs have been going for several years now. And we got a bunch of great books lined up for uh, one a month through 2023. Uh, we've, we've also been doing morning prayer uh, on the first day of each month. So that's just a, a couple of days from now. On March 1st, Jonathan Wilson, Hartgrove, and I uh, host morning prayer. And this month uh, is the 20th anniversary of the bombing, what was called the shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. And so it was one of the most horrific things um, uh and one of the most shameful things, you know, that that we in our lifetime that we've seen our country do uh, over 900 bombs a day were being dropped on Baghdad. And so a bunch of us um, went to Iraq with the Iraq peace team. And so we're going to have sort of a virtual reunion with folks that were in Iraq together on March 1st. Uh, including Kathy Kelly, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and really helped uh, organize that trip, and other folks that uh, spent the whole month of March uh, in Iraq trying to stand against the war and document the people impacted by the bombing. So we'll talk all, all about that, but I hope you can join us at nine o'clock in the morning, March 1st this week, uh, or if you miss it, you know, if you're working or something or in school, uh, watch the recording of that. It's going to be powerful. A couple other things are uh, that the the work that we're doing, turning guns into garden tools, uh, for me, is Philly-based, but we've got folks doing that all over the country. But we're going to have an open shop. So if you are in the Philadelphia area, and I'm trying to get Lisa up here as well to see the shop. So on March 5th, that's Sunday, this next Sunday, a week from today, uh, the whole afternoon, one to four o'clock, we're going to have an open shop. So if you're in Philly or looking for an excuse for a road trip, come. We'll show you how we turn guns into garden tools and uh, give you a tour of the shop. We've got a memorial wall where people write names of loved ones that they've lost to gun violence. So it's a powerful space. So come join us. All the information's on our social media. And finally, the last kind of uh, announcement thing before we jump into the, the conversation with Lisa is... Red Letter Christians is really excited and honored to sponsor. Uh, we're, we're one of the co-producers of a film series called The People Versus the Death Penalty. And we'll be showing clips of that. Many of them are, are people that are a part of the Red Letter Christian family Um the one clip that we already put out there was from Ron McAndrew, who was a former prison warden and um, horrifically oversaw, supervised the executions of people in Florida. And so he, he shares a little bit of his story and what it did to him to carry out those executions. And we'll be sharing a bunch of other personal stories of people who have been directly impacted by the death penalty. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, the people versus the death penalty, one of the projects that Red Letter Christians is working with a bunch of other folks on. So I think that's enough of the introductory things. Let me just say that Lisa Sharon Harper 
is many things. She's an incredible speaker and author. Her latest book, Fortune, was one of the books that uh, I got to be on the flip side of this. And uh, you know, we, we really celebrated the release of her book, Fortune, and uh, some of her other books. She's now back in Philly, living on the south side, right on the other side of the city. She's a board member of Red Letter Christians. Uh, she's also the the founder of Freedom Road, which is an incredible partner group that we're working with. So, Lisa, thanks so much for um, your kind words uh, endorsing the book, but being one of the first early readers to give me some feedback. And I'm fully aware as um, a, a white man, there are plenty of blind spots that I have in my social location. And when it comes to history, when we talk about abortion and some of these other issues, colonization um, and, and, you know, enslavement. So that this book is about all that. We're going to talk about it tonight. Thank you, Lisa, for being my friend and partner in this work. And thanks for moderating. I told her before we went live that uh, she's also one of the best uh, just conversationists and facilitators. So I, I'm excited for you to create the conversation tonight. Thanks, Lisa. You're muted. Thank you for, yeah, being here though. So great. <laughs> of course I'm muted. Of course. Um, well, hello everybody. So excited to be a part of this conversation and to moderate a conversation on Shane Claiborne's latest book. And we know Shane puts out like a book a year. <laughs> I cannot keep up Shane. I don't know how you do it, but this book rethinking life is literally, I mean, I think, and I said this in my little blurb, but this is one of those books that you will quote for the rest of your life. There's some really valuable information in this. I think that it's what I also found about it, Shane, was that it's it's a really great primer on what it means to be a Christian mm. for new Christians, for people who, who are maybe have just come into the faith, people who are new to this conversation. Like you have so much great information. Um, not only, not only, of course, biblical and about the faith, but you have a whole, your whole first part dives into the scripture, but also the history of our faith and how our faith has thought about life. I thought that was really invaluable, but I have to say that, and you, and you probably know where I'm going with this. I tend to talk a lot about the lineage of racial hierarchy mm. and you got into that lineage in part three, actually in part two. And like, basically, how did it break? Like, what's what's the break? And talked about Plato and Aristotle. And I talk a lot about them and just discovered them as I was looking for the roots. So it's kind of fun to see that yeah. in your research, you found the same roots. Um, and so I just wanted to just saying all of this as a primer, because what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually move through your book, um, not chapter by chapter, but at least part by part in order to give you a sense, give you a chance to really kind of share with us, what are some of the main thoughts that, that you had as mm. you were, or even that stick with you now that you're probably months away from doing the writing and now you're kind of talking about it. What are the, what are the points that, that have stuck and that are kind of, you're realizing you're even taking deeper now that you're now talking about it. Um, before I begin, I do want to say that both of us actually are are um, coming to everybody from the great city of Philadelphia, which was the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape people, um, whose land was spanned uh, from New York State up in New York City, lower New York State, all of New Jersey, most of New Jersey, and then um, the lower part of Pennsylvania, where we are in Philadelphia. And they were a great and a mighty people, and they are still here. And mm. um, and and so we acknowledge them tonight. Mm. Now, having done that acknowledgement um, and uh, properly um, given due where it's due, um, let's dive in and talk about your book. I I want to start with the Sermon on the Mount because mm -hmm. on page two. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're going to page two. We're going to make our way all the way <laughs> to page 208. Okay. So don't think I only read the first chapter. I didn't. I read the whole thing. So on page two, though, you say that the Sermon on, on the Mount played a, a major role for you in kind of changing your view about life. 
And I wonder mm-hmm. if you can just share, because you don't actually go deep into that, that I could see. I wondered how, what was the significance of the Sermon on the Mount for you? Well, interestingly enough, you know, it's, it's Jesus's, I mean, I mean, this is his, his sort of manifesto. And yet I think of all of the sermons that I heard growing up, mm-hmm. I heard all kinds of sermons from the Old Testament to Paul's writing. I mean, I heard sermons from the Gospels, but I can't recall, it could have happened, but I can't recall a sermon that really walked through the radical uh, commands that we we find in there, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. selling what you have and giving it to the poor, but mm-hmm. loving our enemies, um, really thinking about how Jesus is challenging some of our old ways of thinking. I mean, literally said, you've heard it said, you know, that's <laughs> right. I'll do this, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you this. And, and uh, I think sometimes we, we tiptoe around some of that, you know, but for me, I mean, this is where my own faith went from being just a way of believing, you know, Jesus uh-huh. died for my sins, rose from the dead to going, this is going to reorient my whole life. You know, the last or wow. first, the first or last. And, and it's also, you know, I, I later found out that Gandhi read the sermon on the Mount, you know, every morning as a way of grounding himself. And in many ways, you know, um, took it more literally than a lot of, uh, you know, Christians do. Yeah. Wow. And that's how he could actually say, I like your Jesus, but I just don't like your Christians because they don't really, they don't look like him very much. All right. So what does love require of us? I just love that question. It's a great question. And you ask it on page three. So now we're on page three. (laughs) So like, But on page three, you basically do. You say that this is going to be the question that we come back to with every one of these issues, because we're not actually talking about issues. We're talking about people. I wonder, first of all, how did you, when and how did you make the shift from this is about issues to this is about people? And and how did this question come to you? Well, you know, my mind goes everywhere when I'm writing out. I, I, I don't know how it works for you, but it, it's almost like a book begins to find its way, right? It yeah, finds its yeah. grounding. And, and, um, and that's sort of what happened is I was trying to find out what's the common thread in some of these different things, you know, and e- even in the book itself, like what, 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 what's the takeaway, you know, what, what I want to walk away with. And it was when I started writing early on, about sin and recalling, you know, the story I tell in the book about this pastor who told me that all sin has to do with um, not living into what love requires of us. And that's really different from how I had been kind of conditioned to think of sin as disobedience Mm -hmm. to God. God's upset because we, you know, we haven't obeyed the commandments and things like that. And yet all of that is to try to show us the way of love, you know, to love our neighbor, to love ourselves, to love the earth. Um, right. And to to think of sin through that lens was really, you know, a new, a new paradigm shift for me. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to think, you know, that all sin is kind of um, falling short of love. And, and so the, the refrain I keep mm-hmm. coming back to in the book was, what does love require of us? You know, what, what does love require of us on immigration? Um, what does loving our enemies mean? Can we love them and prepare to kill them? You know, like, like mm. start to mm. wrestle with some of that. Wow. What does love require of us to really uh, repair history, right? To not just be sorry about it, but to go, you know, love, love is, is an action. And, and so like, uh, you know, the work we've done around thinking about reparations and thinking about, you know, what, what, how does love repair some of the wounds that sin has inflicted? So yeah, that's, that's, so it just kind of found its way. And then I had a really good editor too, of course, you know, I should give a shout out to Christine, you know, they, like she, <laughs> she said, this is it. This is the refrain, right? Like, like a song, you know, that you keep coming back to the chorus. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of what it became through the book is, is coming back to that question. That is so helpful. I mean, it really is when, when I, when I saw that question, it reminded me, first of all, a couple of things. You make a really big point about we're talking about an ethic of love and ethics is not really something that 
you know, folks in our former like evangelical world really talk about, they don't really talk about ethics. There's not a whole huge category for ethics, but what I came to understand as I was studying, um, particularly like the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, um, the whole old Testament actually, and then began to, as I understood, that's actually an ethical book. Then I began to read Jesus through an ethical lens and I'm going, wow, like it really does change how you, how you understand your faith, because just like you were saying, love then, which is active, not just a concept or philosophical belief system, it's actions is at the heart of our faith. Mm, And mm. if it is, then sin becomes about ethics. Yeah, exactly. About not being perfect, right? Totally. And and then it makes a lot of sense when scripture says things like, I mean, in multiple places, Jesus says that, you know, all of the law is summed up into this love, love God, love your neighbor. Uh, I mean, like really, if, if all of the law is summed up into love, then sometimes we're getting really distracted because that, and that's where I think our political convictions, our opinions on issues can really get in the way of love, you know? And uh, so, yeah. So good. Okay. So page four, (laughs) we are, we're taking a slow walk here. We will speed up. Don't worry. On page four, you take about, you talk about the people who caused you to wrestle with the question, what does love require of you? Um, I wonder, do you feel accountable to them? Say a little bit more about that, like Derek and the folks I met in Iraq. And yes. Yeah. So I know that for me, when I have had a major paradigm shift, um, and it's usually been because my proximity, the proximity gap between me and the people who are dealing with this issue shrink, right? And then they tell me yeah. their stories. And I begin to understand that, whoa, I was fighting for something that was causing them pain. And I have the ability through my agency, my human agency, and living in a democracy to push for policies and ways of being together that lighten their load, right? Or that at least speak the truth about their load. I feel now, I walk away from those relationships. Actually, let's put it this way. I never walk away from those relationships. They are always with me. And I feel accountable to them. I wonder... Do you feel that? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the oh, one of the holiest, like most sacred things about doing the work of justice is um, meeting some of the most incredible people I've ever met. I mean, on almost every front, right? Like I think of the folks on the border that we've met. I think of folks in the poor people's campaign from, you know, the coal mines of West Virginia to the streets of Philly, you know, Um, and, and especially, you know, folks that have been impacted by the death penalty and it's not monolithic, right? I mean, like, like I was sharing in the intro, um, folks that have carried out executions, you know, like have been on that side of it. And then folks like our friend Derek, who um, was wrongfully convicted, had six execution dates. I mentioned him on page four, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this this has mm-hmm. shaped who he is. His entire adult life really, you know, mm-hmm. was watching his peers be killed in Ohio knowing he was innocent and, you know, and so, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable people's um, not just reveal resilience or survival, but the tenderness of Derek's heart, you know, like that he says, he quotes King all the, all the time. I've seen too much hate to hate, you know, I've chosen love. And so, um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's, what's I think consistent across the issues are these people who have been so, directly assaulted by the worst of humanity and injustice and yet walk away using their pain to try to prevent harm for others and to heal the wounds of others to walk alongside other people who like for Suzanne you know that uh, as a victim or dad being murdered now she's she's a force for you know love and healing in the world so yeah I mean they just I feel humbled every day to 
get to stand alongside of the people that you and I do in this movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would say, I mean, I was actually really impressed when I got to Katie's story mm-hmm. um, because, well, this is your wife. So boy, you better be, <laughs> you better get this right. <laughs> and, but the level of your accountability to her was striking in that you scrapped earlier versions because she said, nah, no, 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 you don't get it. And, you you know, in several versions, she, she made very clear you didn't get it. And then you decided to put this in her own words because you're accountable to her. So I just want to, that is, for me, that's really important. Um, and I think it's especially important, quite honestly, for you as a man of European descent, who so many walk even in this justice world without a sense of accountability to the communities that they are advocating with. And I say, I see you being accountable to those communities. So, and I, I just wanted to know from your mouth, is that true? And, and you've said, yes. So thanks Lisa. And yeah, I mean, we might talk more about, you know, Katie's contribution to the book, but I can't say more. I mean, I can't say enough about how, this has been a project that I mean, this this is more than a book project for us. We've been walking through a conversation and um, mm-hmm. um, her experience on that for a lot of years. And so how that takes shape in a way that's authentic and doesn't isn't exploitive or weird. I originally had a section in the early on in the book that talked a little bit about that and Katie and it was I, I was really proud of it <laughs> and I read it to Katie and she's like it, it is beautiful but it's also like it could come across that you're using that story to kind of bait people mm-hmm. in and so we took it out you know and I think mm-hmm. like that was true of some of the other women that like I feel like have really including you that have really caused me to to be accountable and to like say, Hey, how's this sound to you? You know, is this true? Mm-hmm. And even if it's true, like, is it, is it framed in a way that's accurate? You know? So mm. anyway, yeah. Yep. No, that's exactly right. I, I, I feel that I felt that as I was reading now, I want to, first of all, I do want to just say for people who have not read the book yet, um, that this book is about life, but it is not about abortion. It is about life. And it includes a conversation about abortion, but it also includes conversations about poverty and racism and the death penalty and gun violence. I mean, all of the things that, that, that are impacting us with regard to life right now. And I was just reading a New York Times article. I think it was New York Times, either that or Washington Post, forgive me. I think it is New York Times today, um, just about how dire life is getting on our Mm. planet. Like it's, it's literally, oh no, you know what it was? It was the medium. (laughs) It was, it was an article on medium where someone was talking about how people in Britain right now can't even get vegetables. They're literally having to ration vegetables in Britain Mm. because Mm. they went the way of isolation and hierarchy. And, uh, and we're going to make it on our own and not collaboration and connection, which is what we were created for, right? And mm-hmm. so that's actually putting them in dire straits. But then this person went on to talk about, and then there's also climate change. And there's all of these like existential threats to life that are happening in our world right now, which is another reason why I felt like this book is coming at exactly the right time. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we need this book for multi- to, to have a, a, as you say, a consistent ethic of life as people who follow Jesus. So with that said, I want to I want to dive into this this section of your thinking called that you named the wonder gap where you start talking about, you know, the reality that we can tend to denigrate our world because we've lost wonder for it. And you go through all of these crazy stats that I'm not going to name, but I just wondered are there any facts that still stick out to you like any like things that still make you go, wow. Well, I, I, uh, 
it's it's you know that section has a lot of Katie's like wild Katie nature yeah, facts yeah. in it. My wife is like huge into nature and is always telling me, you know, this bird does this or this whatever. You know, we've like um so I'm I'm learning almost all the time. Like Lisa, I just learned this week that apparently spiders can keep a um frog as a pet so that it um catches the insects that would eat the spider's eggs. So you're just like my Gosh, you know, what? like so that's that's kind of like uh, I didn't even have that one in the book. Like every week, and but I love that sense of wonder, right? The wonder of wow. nature and creation. So I got some of that language from my astronomy professor. You know, gave him several shout outs uh, in the book, but yes. he, you know, he he um, talks about just how big the universe is, you know. And so I think um, mm-hmm. uh, we sometimes think that science and faith are at odds, but to go no, actually, the more you know about the universe the more all it can inspire on us to have at, at the, the gift of creation. So, um, and being in the concrete, you know, I grew up like in, in, in a sense, like in the mountains of Tennessee. So seeing sort of God's handiwork, but when there's so much concrete kind of suffocating us and when everything that we kind of see in our uh, peripheral, as much as I love the, the skyscape of Philadelphia, Lisa, right? Like this is, I do, you know, I love yes, that. <laughs> I know it, but it's, it's human made stuff, you know, so to like to, to reclaim that sense of wonder of, uh, you know, of God. And, you know, that's what they say in Philly, that there's three stars you can see on a good night. And one of them <laughs> is a helicopter, you know, in Philly. Oh, but, no. so, um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, even seeing the kids in our neighborhood that are like we grew kiwis for the first time this year, like yeah. kids are seeing the fireflies, like all that, like I think is is a return to going, yes, there is a God that made all of this and it is good. Yeah. And, you know, and that actually brings me to the next, actually my next question. And it has to do with your section on the image of God. Um, so now we're we're all the way up to page 30. Y'all, we, we kind of took a leap there. So there you go. We kind of went, told you we went forward. So you talk about the need to not look at, but to look into people. And it's funny because that reminded me of something that I often do. And at the end of my talk on the very good gospel, um, where I'll ask people to imagine the other and to imagine their eyes. In fact, what was so cool is in your own text, you said, you know, you can see, you can see into people's souls through their eyes. And I think that is absolutely true. Um, and then, then I'll ask people to look past their eyes and look for the image of God. So mm-hmm. I wonder for you, what, like, what was it that caused you to make that shift? How did you make that shift of just looking at, rather than looking at people, looking into them. Do you remember the moment or do you know, how do you practice that? Well, I, I think that there's folks that have named that in different ways um, in their writing. Um, Martin Buber, you know, that talks about I, thou, how we can, we can actually see another person as, as holy Dorothy Day saying the only true atheist is the one who can't see the kind of wonder of God in the eyes of another person. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can think of times where that's happened for me. One of them I, I write about in India where I was caring for a man that we couldn't, we couldn't, we didn't have any language in common. So all that we could do is look at each other. And and in particular for him, he had the skin disease of leprosy. And so he was ostracized. So he had probably, I mean, I don't know, probably, probably never, if ever, maybe very rarely been touched by a white person. I mean, this is a really remote village. So I'm sitting down 20 years old, you know, and just holding this man's arm. And then that's when he said namaste. And, you know, I'd heard that word before, but my friend kind of stopped me, um, a friend, an Indian friend who translated it. And he said, he said, listen, um, I know you've heard the word, but do you know what it means? And he said, it means I honor the Holy One who lives in you. Yeah. And he said, it's a it's a really powerful thing that you almost can't even understand the depth of it in English. Mm. And, you know, since then, I've heard other people name that, you know, Ubuntu, that, you know, I can't be all that I'm meant to be until you're all that you've meant to be. We're connected, you know, that. um, So, um, yeah, and I mean, I I see that every day in our neighborhood, you know, people that it feels like this world is just crushing the image of God in them. Mm -hmm. But I kind of challenge myself to um, 
to look in people's eyes, you know, um, mm-hmm. even people that are, you know, in, in a really rough state of being because of, you know, the, the, yeah. the heroin or whatever it is, you know, and, um, and we all, you know, we all could be in that place. So I think it's a reminder that their same belovedness and their same brokenness is inside of me. Like they're made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God equally. Uh, so I try to, I try to keep myself reminded of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I love that. And and for me, one of the practices has been to, to take the one more step. And I think that you do this intrinsically or, or let's say implicitly, but I think it's worth saying is that I see the image of God in you. And what that means is that even though you are ensnared by heroin addiction right now, what I see is that yeah. you were created by God to exercise dominion in the world, to yeah. exercise stewardship of the world. And in this moment, you are unable to fulfill that call over your life, but I see your call. Yeah. I yeah. see your and, capacity. You know, I give you several shout outs in the book, Lisa, but I think your work around what, what actually happened um, in, in the garden of Eden at that original mm-hmm. fall was, was, it was a, a break in the relationships of humans with each other, with the earth, with God, mm-hmm. and even with ourselves. And you name that yes. so powerfully, you know, that there can be times where we um, start to lose the sense of our own belovedness and our own sacredness and look in the mirror and don't necessarily see the image of God. We see all kinds of other stuff. So, and I think it's also like with, with our history and race and all that to be able to say, right. Black lives don't just matter. <laughs> They're absolutely precious, you know? Yeah. Yes. And planned and have a plan for, right? So you say, now we're up to 36, (laughs) that God hates sin. And, um, you know, you talk about, you you talk about this. I'm wondering if you can just share with folks, well, you know what? Never mind, Because you actually already talked about that just a little bit ago. So I don't want to retread, retread ground. Um, But we all... God hates sin because sin is the antithesis of love. Sin breaks that which is brought together by love. Is that is that right? That's what you talked about yeah, earlier. Yeah, totally. And 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 you know, I think there's a lot of real loose ethical moral language in, that's responding to the overly fundamentalist, legalistic, you know, mm-hmm. like all the rules and stuff. Mm-hmm. But if we aren't careful, we lose the sense that we do need some boundaries, you know, and and things like um romance and all these things like like people can really get crushed in these situations and so like these things are meant to protect us they're meant to help us love each other well and if we if we just think we can do that on our own um like we, we can end up doing a lot of damage so i think you right. know all of that's you know it's uh yeah it's, it's an ethic no ethics right yeah right. how do we be together and practice relationships without ethics that's how we hurt each other yeah yeah Good. Okay. So text of terror. Wow. Okay. So like that, that comes up on page 41. And I just wonder if you could just refer a bit on what's the text of terror that still sticks out to you that you mentioned so many of them, but are, is there one like you do? And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like, whew, like they, they really, they really do throw you through a loop. But then you don't actually spend a ton of time and you say you can't not in this context on like breaking them down in the biblical you know, context and everything. But is there one that through your writing of this text, you kind of got to and you began to understand how this text has been manipulated and what was the actual purpose of it? Well, I did a lot of reading on this one because I'm I'm not primarily a Bible scholar, you know, and so I'm leaning on a lot of other folks. See, even the language of texts of terror, you know, is borrowed. But I think that that idea that like the scripture has a whole lot of violence in it. I mean, I think even Noah, as much as I try to think about the flood as a redemptive act, mm-hmm. one, I mean, did God really have to kill the entire world in mm. order to save us? I mean, it's a hard, those are hard things. And I think we need to be able to ask those questions. Jewish folks have been a little better at mm. like wrestling with scripture, you know, like asking mm-hmm. hard questions and Christians. It's almost like you got to just um, 
accept all this is this is how it worked. You know, if there was another way, God would have done it. But, you know, <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I do uh, try to um, say, this is how I've come to understand that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, it is helpful to say that like when the flood happened, like the entire earth was full of violence. And it's really clear to that, that like the, in all of this, that, our sin, our failure to love was mm-hmm. killing us. And um, whether you think of it as like a divine chemotherapy or whatever, that God is trying to rescue us. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, these stories are all about that. Now there's still, I mean, there's still, you know, I mean, the, the stories I talk about, you know, even like the weird ones, you know, the bears that come out and maul. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but I mean, some of them are in the New Testament too. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who lie about stealing and are, you know, struck dead. Um, so you go like, how do we fit that into a narrative of the sacredness of life? Um, uh, when when sometimes it can feel like um, Scripture doesn't have that same consistent thread. So there's whole books written on that, and I try to direct people to some of those. But I do think that this is where Jesus. Um, becomes, you know, as I get to the section on Jesus, is the full revelation of God. So yes, it is. And I think, uh, you know, it's Greg Boyd that talks about how you can't see the sun every day. Like sometimes the clouds cover it, but you know that the sun is there. And in one sense, Jesus is helping us see God uh, with more clarity um, and through the clouds, you know, that we can now see God a little bit more clearly. Um yeah, but you know, I, I think I quoted Mark Lowry who says it can feel like God got born again between the Old Testament and the New, or that you know God went through anger management uh, oh you know, somewhere between Malachi <laughs> and Matthew. But I don't, you know, I, I think it is helpful to name Lisa that one of the first things the early church was wrestling with was exactly this: Is uh-huh. Jesus the same as the God of the Old Testament? Or is this a new and improved God? Wow. Is Jesus better than God in the Old uh-huh. Testament? And they were wrestling with that. So wow. it's no surprise that we're still wrestling with some of the character of God that we find a hard time reconciling with Jesus, you know, 2000 years later. I think also, I really found it very, very helpful. And I want to recommend this. Um, if people are wrestling with those texts of terror, I think that the best voices that I have heard wrestle with those voices are people who are often and even historically on the other side, on, on the on the spear's tip end of those texts and also on the spear's tip end of actual physical terror in this world. So womanist scholars, liber- liberation scholars, um, black scholars, indigenous scholars, when they deal with these texts, you see stuff that you just have not seen before. Um, and mm-hmm. oftentimes what they will bring out, and I remember in a conversation that I had with Ruby Sales, actually on my podcast about, about some of these texts, she was, her hermeneutic was just different than the hermeneutic that I was approaching it with. Um, and it's, it is the hermeneutic of the damned. It's the hermeneutic of, of like you actually even say in your book, the hermeneutic of those like Howard Thurman who talks about the disinherited, the ones whose backs are up against the wall, it is a different hermeneutic that they're mm-hmm. approaching it with. And I actually personally, I think that it's a, it, it tends to be a more reliable hermeneutic because the people who were writing the text are closer to, to their social location. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be more, more that they see, you know, that they could, they can see oh, yeah. that maybe others wouldn't be able to see. So just a little, uh, a plug um, in the midst of this. If you are struggling with a text of terror, go find a womanist scholar and read her work um, or a liberation scholar. And the work that you do in here, I think is really, um, it's a really, honestly, it's a really great start. So you talk about how hate escalates. See how we're jumping now? We're on 126. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you talk about escalating hate and you talk about that in the context of Constantine and you're talking about how, you know, you're asking the question historically, how did this, you know, how did this happen? How did, how did we get to such a violent world? And I love the work that you do in this section. Um, 
this, the way that you break down Constantine, the way that you, you actually, and oh my gosh, that you bring out in particular, um, the, the ways that, um, uh, anti-Jewish hate is in many ways a precursor to all the rest of it. I have heard, um, anti-Semitism. I've heard that from Jewish scholars and rabbis, but I have never heard that from someone who was not Jewish. So for you to say, to, to stand in agreement and, and in, in solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters who have actually said, you know, we talk today about black, white, you know, um, Asian, Native American, all of those things, but we have but you have to understand anti-Semitism to understand any of that was really, um, I think, prophetic to see in your text. Well, th- this is, first of all, I think the Constantine stuff, uh, you know, we I had done some thinking on that when I was uh, writing Jesus for president and um, the, the Constantinian shift and um and I was, uh, but there were things that I learned, Lisa, in this, that, um, uh, for instance, I, you know, it didn't occur to me that um, Constantine killed his own family, like a year after hosting the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> You're like, wow. wow, you know, and I mean, he's what? revered as a saint. Um, I mean, the Orthodox Church, he's a saint of saints. So he's, you know, kind of, um, and so. Uh, and our friends, your 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 friends of mine, Mark Charles and Sung Shan Ra, mm-hmm. have kind of um, challenged this narrative of Constantine's conversion. You know, and like you know how mm-hmm. like did did he really see this cross? You know, and and um, anyway, that so we you know I go into that mm-hmm. a little bit, but I think the antisemitism was really. Um, how you see this began to take root. And I'm grateful to our friend, you know, David Gushy, he's done incredible work on this. And I give him lots mm-hmm. of shout outs because I'm building on a lot of his work. But you see how early this narrative uh, began to form that it was the Jews that killed Jesus. And even right. how we think of the Pharisees and like the way that we've come to think about Jews um, as God haters or God killers. Mm-hmm. And there's some really like toxic, terrible, dangerous theology that paved the way to, you know, Hitler and Nazi, uh, the Nazis. Um, But it it goes way hundreds of years back. Some of the early Christians that I love and I quote from all the time. And I think that's what I try to be fair to in the book is that Mm -hmm. you can speak truth and and and, and, uh, untruth out of the same mouth, you know, and we we can have these blind spots that um, St. John Chrysostom, Martin Luther, um, I mean, spewed some real anti-Semitic hatred. And you look at how even as early as 300 AD, uh, there was the prohibition of intermarriage between Jews and Christians, 300 AD, you know, and then you look over the centuries and anti-Jewish laws had like so many different manifestations, wow. right? And then, of course, Hitler, you know, obviously exemplified that in the most horrific way, but he mm-hmm. he used that theology. He said, literally, he said, just, he didn't use the name of Jesus much, which is very interesting, and I kind of note that, but he said, you know, just as um, Christ, like, cleansed the temple of Jews, I'm cleansing the world of them. And he oh saw God. He them poisonous, right? So, I mean, yeah. And I mean, even today, you know, like, we got, this has not gone away. Like, we had folks, nope. you were there in yes. Charlottesville, right, that said Jews yes. will not replace us. That's right. The KKK still has this uh, uh, anti-Semitic and racist and anti-LGBT, I, I mean, so many different forms mm-hmm. of hatred. But if we don't look at anti-Semitism, especially one of the earliest manifestations of deadly theology, Mm -hmm. then, you know, some of these other forms we also will miss. Isn't it also true that these, and I think that you, you know, I, I, I see hints of it in what you just did, because you, you talked about all these different forms, right. Um, For forms of hatred, but I actually, I don't know, brother, I'm thinking hate is one Thing that fuels this for some, but it's actually not the thing that fuels it for most. I think that what fuels anti-Semitism, racism, gender, 
um, violence and all is actually a lust for power and money. That mm. mm. I think that at the heart of it is that because ultimately really what it's about is it's about, it's about what you actually talk about briefly, exceptionalism and supremacy, right? So supremacy obviously is at the heart of it. Mm. We want to be supreme. We want to be, and who, who is called the supreme one in scripture? God. So yeah. isn't it ultimately a fight with God? Wow, that's deep. That's to deep. be God. Yeah. And I mean, to think that, you know, this is where theology can go, that, that well, they were God's chosen people, the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, but then they missed it. They missed the Messiah. And so we are now God's chosen people. Right. And then you get this really whacked out theology, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think we got to get that right. And um, yeah. So (laughs) thank you, brother. I appreciate that. So um, we, let me see. We all seeing Derek in the chat, put, you know, the, the camp Auschwitz that we saw even on January 6th. So kind Mm -hmm. of hearkening some of that. Yeah. Okay. I see that. I'm sorry. I I couldn't read my writing. (laughs) That's all right. So like, these are all, I don't know if you can see, but these are all my notes here. It's like, oh my gosh on the back page for all my questions, but basically um, you take that hierarchy all the way to Aristotle. And I mentioned earlier that I do that too. And I just loved yeah. seeing you do that. I wonder, like, what is the origin story of the hierarchy of human value? Yeah, I, I, I think that it's helpful to see that this, this lie that yeah. some lives matter more than others, or maybe uh, another way of saying it is, is some lives are more valuable than others. Some lives reflect the image of God more than others. Like mm-hmm. that lie is, has been told in so many different ways mm-hmm. um, for hundreds of years. And, you know, we can tell it in terms of metals that, you know, like, a, like the, the gold and silver and bronze or whatever you, you know, you want to mm-hmm. make of it that like people b- because of the, the shade of their skin value mm-hmm. more uh, or, you know, some value more than others. Um, that that um the devil keeps tells the same is t- telling the same lies just in new ways you know and mm-hmm. and i think um that's why um the the response to being specific about some lives matter like that black lives matter the response being all lives matter becomes so problematic um if we can't be particular especially about the lives that have uh, been shamed or dishonored historically, um, mm-hmm. then we, we we don't really mean that all lives matter until we can say uh, with unapologetically and passionately from our heart that Native lives matter or that Palestinian lives matter, yeah. that, you know, disabled lives matter, that LGBTQ lives matter. So, like, I think that that is kind of what um, is a is a part of this, right? Um, yeah. Being able to, and to really name what that. I like about what you just said is that you know. We would not, if they matter, then they, they matter enough to create boundaries on the pain of black lives and Mm -hmm. native lives and to create structures and systems, a new way of being together that does not exploit those lives, does not exploit those bodies or families or the work, their labor. I was just, again, reading and and I believe this, this was, again, this was the New York Times that a lot of the immigrant children that have come across our border in the last one year are now, right now, working for slave labor, basically slave, I don't even want to say wages, near no wages. And they are kind of trapped in jobs that are, these are kids that that would be against America's labor laws, um, but they are creating our cereal, like our Cheetos, our Cheerios, um, our lucky charms, which is so deep because these are cereals that go to children and we have children boxing them children yeah. in factories, um, where women's hair have been pulled from their scalp because they got caught in the, in the grinds of those, of those factories. Mm-hmm. And now we have children working in those places. This is literally taking us back to 19. 19- 20, 1909, 1908, 1890, when we had no labor laws, we are back in that space again, 
And I think partly because we say that immigrant lives matter. We say black lives matter. We say, but we haven't been willing to legislate that they matter. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Lisa. And that's why, you know, the original all lives matter were the founding documents of our country that said yes. all, all men are created equal. All, everybody all men. Right. Come on. And then, but in the same yeah. document, we're calling Native American savages. We're saying black folks are two thirds human and people owned human beings, right? Like uh, yes. the folks that are writing these documents. So that's why, you know, I found it very helpful. Um, our friend Alexia Salvatierra, who I also, uh, you know, quote in, in in this section, because she she uses that beautiful passage from Corinthians of one body with many parts. But then yeah. she says, you know, that it ends by saying the parts of the body which have been dishonored yes. are given special honor. And she calls it God's affirmative action, right? That yes. God, God is, is celebrating and lifting up the people that we have historically shamed and crushed. And so if that isn't beautiful, like, cause that, that that's what this is about, right? It is being able mm -hmm. to, to correct what we've we've done wrong in history. So yeah, it's it's, it's really true. And you know, Terry Webb has said evil will not go away, but the light of Christ will confront. You are so exactly right, Terry. The question is, what does that light look like? And what does that light cause us to do? How does it cause us to love? It really goes hmm. back to that question that, that Shane poses throughout the whole book. What does love require of us uh, yeah, in light not of Christ? I'm, we're not going to get into this a lot, Lisa, but you and I both talked about the eugenics project and I go yes. into a lot of detail on that. I know we're not going to get in the weeds of it tonight, but this is exactly what we began to do is say, we're going to engineer the perfect race, right? And this is where we forbid, uh, you know, interracial marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. All of that was a part of like trying to produce the perfect white race um, mm -hmm. and, and literally um, this was all I, I talk about, you know, France, Francis Galton was uh, the, the related to uh, Charles Darwin. So there's these conversations about, you know, the survival of the fittest and the master race and all of this eugenic stuff that we were doing in the U.S. before Adolf Hitler started doing it. So this goes way back. But I mean, it is evil and it ends up becoming like us trying to be God. Right. Like you said, we're, we're yes. not at war with just another human being we're trying to be god and we are we are actually saying we are going to make a better human being than you did that's, than that's, god did whoa. is that not amazing mm. yes okay so we are we are wrapped we're going to be wrapping <laughs> up our time pretty soon i we, really literally we could literally go for a whole another hour because there's that much more material but we won't do that friends um but we are probably going to go a little bit past eight o'clock eastern um past the hour and i hope that people are okay with that because we did I got on a little bit later than the hour. So here you go. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about Katie Joe's story since we mentioned it earlier and we're basically up to that point in the book. Um, can you share with us how, first of all, before, before you do, I want to just say, I really love where you land at the end of that chapter. Mm. You simply land. I think Tell me if I got this right, mm. but that your point at the end of this conversation on abortion is that abortion is human and therefore it is complex. Mm. It's a human problem. It's a human situation. And therefore it is even more complex than we can imagine. Mm. And so in that complexity, you actually end it in the complexity and you ask us, in the reflection questions, which by the way, there are reflection questions at the end of each chapter that I found really helpful, but the reflection questions are just simply asking, where do you, where do you, the reader, um, gravitate to in these options for how we hold this, this question of abortion? I, mm -hmm. I just wonder, can you share with us a little bit of your process, the process that you have been through as a, as a man and as a man of European descent, and especially in light of that history that you do mention in those reflections of the reality that the pro-life movement, quote, pro-life movement um, was really, what is it, um, gestated in the womb of segregation. Yeah, come on. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 um a lot of this, you know, you and I we we hosted those town halls on abortion and it was I, you you remember this during one of those I came in really choked up because my mom had told me that she had an abortion and I never knew my entire life. And it was that town hall that you and I hosted, you know, one of the two on abortion um, that my mom really said, I want, I want to talk about this and I want you to know this. And, and she, um, um, and she also told me to write about it and talk about it. She says, I want to be like, I, I, we need to be able to create exactly what you and I've been trying to do, mm-hmm. safe conversations for people to be able to talk about this and the complexity of it. And the fact that um, when we think about abortion, we're talking about one in four women. Right. And a quarter and, of all women. Yeah. And um all who have different feelings about it, you know, different experiences with it. Um, and so, you know, I, Katie tells her own story uh, and, 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 um, and I, I do want to just like read the last line because I think it's, it, 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 it she leaves you exactly where she is. Right. It mm-hmm. says, sometimes I feel sad, angry, sad again, relief sometimes, but not often happy, guilty, that I'm a bad mom, acceptance, and the list goes on. Anytime I reflect on that day or find myself in a discussion about abortion, the one thing I almost never feel is love. And, you know, in that that piece, which she also read in the audio book and have, um, mm. um, she talks about, you know, what it felt like to have all these people standing there with signs and yelling terrible things, hateful things. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and now for us to think like, you can still feel passionately about this. You can feel, um, but but let's let's talk about what love means for us on this issue. What love requires of us, and mm-hmm. um, and love's not a scarce. There's there's not a scarcity. You can love the mother or the father in these situations. And we can love the unborn child, the potential for life. We can wrestle through that. And that's why I think like maybe a new place that we can find common ground is by saying um, we're going to be fueled by love. There's no other, there's no other thing that, that matters in all this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe we can find some better places of, of, common agreement in, in trying to say we let's try to reduce the number of abortions and some of the policies that would actually do that um the people that say they're pro-life have opposed things like health care and child care and uh, a, a living wage and um so so if we really do care about that then like um we need more than bumper stickers and t-shirts you know and and love requires action love requires that we we get involved in people's lives and we not and we and we not just talk about this as as if there aren't real human beings affected by it you know yeah. even even the idea of like what's often you know late term abortion abortions that are in the 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 um later part of pregnancy um we talk about that as if Sometimes some people talk about that as if people are just having abortions. You know, I decided I don't want to have a child at eight months in or something. Crazy. I'm yet to find a single person that no. has that story. The people that you and I have, you know, had on in these town halls, some of whom have like had horrific health crisis that lo- one of them lost it. One of the two twins that, you know, that they were pregnant with and are mm-hmm. wrestling with what, 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 what do I do right now? Mm-hmm. And so, we're talking about things in, in, in ways often that are more about sound bites and making our point and, and, you know, even arguing the Bible or something like that are disconnected to people's lived reality and to what loving another person really means for us. And, and quite honestly, I, I, I think we've also quite, we, I think we've actually lost connection to God's love for women. Yeah. I mean, think about this. The thing that that I never saw in scripture until a rabbi showed it to me, a rabbinical scholar, um, showed me that in the scripture that um, the law said, 
if a woman was pregnant and was beaten by a man and the woman, right. the woman lost the, the, um, lost the, the, the pregnancy, pregnancy was ended, then the man would have a civil infraction. Hmm. It would be, it would be considered a civil infraction if the, if the baby died, but if the woman died, he would get the death penalty. Hmm. He yeah. would die. It was that eye for an eye era, right? Mm-hmm. So that tells us something about how God, because this is now God's law. This is literally law handed down by God to God's people before the kings and all of that, right? So we're talking in the in the time of the Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all of that. So when we're talking about God's law, that's what God said. That's how God said God cared for and loved women. Mm. But given the choice to save a child or save a woman right now in many of the states that are that are that have like trigger laws that have been triggered, the women would have to die. Mm. That's literally what the law is saying. Yeah, you know, as I was finishing the book, we th- there was that case in Ohio, I think it was, with the 10-year-old, right, that was mm-hmm. raped and assaulted and then would have been forced to carry this pregnancy out at uh, 10 years old, right? Wasn't that? Yeah. I mean, just uh, and um and so I, I think that's where we we've got to really go. Um I do believe that like a way of thinking about policy and legislation around this is similar to gun laws, that we could have some common sense, like boundaries on our abortion yes. laws, just like we do. We should have. We don't yes. have, but we should have on guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no room for nuance, right, for hearing people. So that's part of why I quoted, you know, Heidi Crowder, this young woman with Down syndrome, who's mm-hmm. an activist, because in some countries uh, it, it, at the time that she's quoted in the UK, you could abort uh, a child up to 24 weeks before pregnancy unless they had Down syndrome and you could abort up to pregnant, uh, up to birth. I mean, uh, up to birth on that. And she and she said I find it deeply offensive as a person who has Down syndrome. It makes me really upset and cry because it reminds me that no one loves me. And yet they do. Mm. This is a you know young woman with Down syndrome. That's real. Who's, who's her social mm. location, right? Who she is. That's right. Fueled her to be an abortion activist. So mm. I think that's the stuff where we go, hey, we're going to we're going to stop just having these conversations in some culture war, right? As if that's people right. are not affected. Yeah. That's, and that's, and I think that's actually, we'll, we'll close that, that part of the conversation on that because I love that because war, when you have a war construct, you can only have enemies and friends. You do not have human beings. Mm. There is no in between. And when you have an enemy or, an, or a friend, you have people that you can denigrate and dominate and, cause to have great pain or even kill or those who are your allies, right? So allies and and enemies, that's the framework of war. And that's the framework we've been in. And so as a result, women and children are dying. Mm -hmm. Um, So Shane, as we close (laughs) our conversation, we're going to close the conversation, but I want to close it by giving a nod to part three, which is repair. How do we repair? Mm. What has been broken? Yeah, so I, 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 uh, I, I give a few uh, invitations to think that these are, you know, not an exhaustive list, but a few things that we can do is be a truth teller um, and and tell the truth about our history um, and, and even the truth about some of our church history, where where Christians have simultaneously even in the same moments in history, been a force for death and a force for life with competing narratives uh, that I think even go on to this day, right? We've got folks that, uh, so I think we got to tell the truth about that if we're going to get our future right. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, and proximity, you know, being near to those who are impacted. Um, that's what's changed my, uh, my, my heart has changed. And then my head sometimes follows my heart. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So, um, 
I think we need creativity. You know, this uh, the idea that I kind of roll with in that section is that we can protestify. So not just be reacting to what's wrong, but proclaiming how it can be made right, how it can be healed. And then, you know, I, I kind of end uh, the book with um, uh, a, a serious um, nod to the women, you know, that have been so heroic and saying, you know, maybe it's not just a dude problem, our violence and our desecration of life. But when you look at, I, I list these atrocities that have all been um, more than a hundred thousand people killed in, in one incident mm. in history. And there's a list of them. I mean, this last century has been the deadliest century in, in, in human history. And you look at these atrocities and they've, um, almost entirely been at the hands of men with access to power. And I sort of go, maybe the access to power is a huge part of this. I'm not saying women are exempt from being violent, but sure. you, you do look at the protectors of life, the, pro, the, the resistors of this from the Hebrew midwives to the moms demand action to, you know, yes. like, I mean, so many of the women of faith um, mm. today. And, and so this invitation to be midwives, you know, to be caretakers of life is, is how I kind of end the book. And of course, you know, quoting from um, our wonderful sister, Val Valerie Carr of, you know, Sikh mm -hmm. activist lawyer in New York, who kind of invites us to see the, the current darkness that perhaps it's not just the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. And there's something new that we can birth at this moment. So, um, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that, that's the kind of vision I think we need. And it's, it's not just a male future. You know? <laughs> in fact, Amen. I think it's, it's the women that can lead us in a better way. So, yeah, man. You know, what's so funny is that um, I was there when Valerie gave that, that speech for the very first yes. time. And it was, I believe it was given on um, the the evening, like New Year's Eve um, coming into 2020 when, or 2021 days, like weeks before the inauguration of, no, 16, 2016, where, when Donald Trump was going to be, you know, inaugurated as president. And so the darkness was it was really impending for a lot of people who have been fighting for justice, including yourself. And the hope that came from that was thick. Mm. Um, and the, 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 the applause was thunderous because yeah. it hit, it hit, it hit the core. So the fact that you ended your book with that and called, I might recall for birthing the revolution, mm. that was the language that you used. I thought was very powerful. So Shane, this book, this book is important. It's important right now. And I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for writing this book. And thank you, Katie Joe, for your vulnerability and your mother for her vulnerability um, and sharing their stories with you and entrusting them to you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for reading it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, uh, but thanks for this conversation, Lisa, and for all your support and all that you've uh, taught me and, you know, that we've, we've been through together. So appreciate you so much. Thanks everybody. Well, love you. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Shane. Have a good one. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.